Welcome to Poets and Writers. We have a great show for you today. We have Jim Minnick on. Jim was on about 13 or 14 years ago when we first started out, and he had a book called, has a book called Blueberry Years, which was so popular. And Jim, we're so delighted to have you back again today. So Jim Minnick, how are you? I'm fine, Henry, and it's great to be back. It's good to hear your voice. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. As we like to ask around the valley here, what are you up to now? Oh, busy trying to get the garden in and firewood in and starting in on new projects. So well, you, life is very cool. Okay, so you have moved around in, in the years that since we talked, and talk a little bit about where you've been. You started your book that was so popular how many years ago was blueberry years uh it came out in 2010 okay 2010 so we're looking at 13 years and talk a little bit about what you did after blueberry years and where you've been because you were raising blueberries so talk about what you've been up to since then so um where it is starts. Uh, the blueberry years took place in floyd county we had the uh, pick your own organic blueberry farm there and for various reasons, we we left that farm and bought another farm in, in still in the New River Valley, but uh, now in Wyss County. And that that move took place around 2000. And then the other big change was uh, I taught at Radford for 20 I forget how many 23 or four years. And there were some administration changes and job changes, and I decided to just go back from uh, MFA, my Master's in Fine Arts. And so in 2013, we kept our farm, but we moved to Greensboro, where I got uh, my MFA in two years. And then 2015, we got a job in Georgia. And so for five years, I taught in Augusta University in Augusta, Georgia, and then uh, retired early, right as COVID was starting. And... I don't know that it's retired, but I'm, I'm working full-time from home. Yeah, so in your farming again, because, yeah, you had not been farming during that time after you left the farm, so to speak, to go down to Georgia. Uh, right. I mean, mm. we, we, yeah, I mean, we still had a garden, but it was much more reduced, and we still did did some things on the land, but, yeah, it was it was much more reduced. Well, it's, so. it's, it's great to have you back in Virginia, and I know I— Years ago, we read poetry when you were down at the Washington County Library, your special guest. So let's talk a bit. First of all, just briefly talk a bit for our audience about Blueberry Years. The book follows, it answers or tries to answer the question why a young couple would chase a blueberry dream, um, crazy dream. And um, for 12 years, my wife and I created and operated this. It was uh, one of the first certified organic pick your own blueberry farms in the mid-Atlantic, and so uh, the book tells that story, but it also tells the story of all the, it was not all, but a lot of the pickers who came, just some really wild, crazy, fun stories, and then the book also celebrates the blueberry, uh, everything, I tried to pull in little strands of everything blueberry, uh, it's a great plant, and has been well-loved over the years, so that was that was a lot of fun. Well, I love the interaction of the folks who came there and what they talked about, and also the farmer. Talk a little bit about your farmer next door and his advice. Uh, sure. He was, in the book, his name is Joe. It was a pseudonym, but uh, he he became a great friend, and he was a, a certified, no, he was a 
uh, pick your own strawberry farmer had been doing that for over 40 years. And whereas we were everything organic, he was everything chemical. And so uh, we had a lot of te- great teasing fun back and forth about what does organic mean. And That's right, because um, he was using fertilizer in traditional, shall we say, methods, right, Jim? Yeah, yeah. I mean, any, any you know, 10-10-10 or uh, Roundup or any anything he that was out there, he, he gave it to He even told me, I mean, he knew the dangers, but he even told me when it first came out, he, he followed the directions and he sprayed uh, DDT in his kitchen because of the mosquitoes. Yeah. Or flies, I forget which. But so, you know, he, yeah. he knew the dangers, but he, he still very much believed in, in all the chemicals. Jim, I have to interject this, you know, Part of my life, I grew up on Roan Mountain, and my job was to spray the flies with DDT. You know, you had those canisters, and so I yeah. would run around. I uh, was talking to my brother the other day about this, and when I wasn't spraying flies, I would just take the DD canister and start spraying it at my brothers and sisters. You know, so oh my. yeah, that was <laughs> those were the days. So yeah. well, anyway, listeners out there, this is Henry McCarthy, W E H C ninety point seven. We're coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus today, and talking with our guest Jim Minnick. Jim Minnick, after Blueberry Years, now you've had a number of books, and I know you were also writer for the newspaper there, but let's let's get, before we get too far in here, talk some more about your different books. So before the Blueberry Years, I had uh, two books of poetry and a book of essays come out, plus a book of poetry I, I edited. And then after the Blueberry Years in 2017, I had my first novel came out called Fire Is Your Water. Mm-hmm. And then um, just this year, I had another nonfiction book come out called Without Warning, The Tornado of Utah, Kansas. Okay, well, let's go Without Warning. Let's go, let's go with that book for a few minutes. It's been out since the fall, right? Or how long has that been? Uh, May. It came out okay. May. Well, go ahead and talk, uh, talk about that book. So it's, it's uh, nonfiction, and the Udall tornado took place on May 25th, 1955, at 10.35 p.m., and there is literally no warning. So uh, most of the town, the Udall is maybe 600 people. Most of the town, the folks were either asleep or heading to bed, and here came, the, I mean, there was a huge storm going on around them, but they didn't, didn't know that it had a tornado, and so it came through and basically wiped out the town and killed them. Uh, 82 people, and it is the worst tornado in the history of Kansas and one of the worst in the history of our country. Wow, you're educating us, Jim Minnick. I did not know about this, and so talk a, talk a little bit more about this story. So um, what drew me to it was I, my sister-in-law grew up in this town um, after the tornado, and uh, I was looking after the novel, I was looking for a new book, and a new new um, idea project, and I was kind of following the elements. Uh, one of my favorite writers, Fred Chapel, has written four different books, each one focused on a different element. So my last book focused on fire, and so my sister-in-law heard all this and said, "Well, my little hometown was wiped out by a storm. That's some kind of wind," and she was right. So that's uh, how I got in. To it, and that started around 2011 or so. And uh, I spent several summers 
uh, over those 12 or 13 years going out to Kansas to interview survivors. Uh, I probably have over 200 hours of interviews. And um, then also spent a lot of time in libraries out there looking through the old newspaper accounts. So it was quite educational for me. You know, I, I have always lived east of the Mississippi. I've never seen a tornado and uh, I've never, I wasn't born, I was born after 1955. So it was all a uh, different time, different place for me and, and not my story, but I had to, uh, I was fascinated by it. And I was originally thinking I would make it a novel, uh, which would have made it a lot easier. But um, as I heard these stories from survivors and as they, they offered them to me, um, gave them to me, I was, I was quickly realized I needed to make this into, keep this as nonfiction so to honor those stories and that trust in these people in this community. So that's what it, it is. And that's, uh, that decision. I'm glad I did it. It just made it a lot harder to, you mm-hmm. know, every, every mm-hmm. fact I had sure. to try to confirm them. And, and well, so, um, now this took place uh, in 19, did you say 1955? Right. Okay, this was before, I've, I've been through one tornado, and I don't want to go through it again. Uh, talk a little bit, there were no warnings, of course, then, and so forth, right? There was no way to prepare for it. Right. Or, or I get, um, so they did not, obviously did not see it coming, and, and you said 80 people again, right? Eight, 82 people, and, and okay. so the the two big problems as far as people not being warned were the communication and the forecasting. And so the forecasting, they they did have radar, and there's a National Weather Service office in Wichita, which is roughly 23, 25 miles from Udall. And the radar picked up this storm as it was happening, but the rain was so thick and the radar was so primitive that they did not see any any sign of a tornado, but there was a, a radar system in Oklahoma, Norman, Oklahoma, I think it was, that you know, several like hundreds of miles away. That that because of just the position of the storm and the radar, they they did see that it was a tornado, but they weren't. They didn't have the communications in place to quickly notify everybody. So um, that's the radar, and then the communication. So. The same storm system hit uh, Blackwell, Oklahoma, about an hour before it hit Udall. And uh, that, I forget how many miles, it's probably 100 miles maybe south of Udall. And so, and it killed 20-some people there. So, you know, it's just amazing to us, I think, now that nobody in uh, Oklahoma, Blackwell area was able to tell people in Kansas, Utah area that this storm was coming, coming, even though it had already killed people and, you know, it was an hour away and, and the, the communication system just was not set up. There, there was, had been storm warnings all day, but they ended at 10 p.m. And and then the, the National Weather Service office got the call about the tornado in Oklahoma, like at 10, 10 or 10, 20, and it was just too late to get anything out through the, the you know, uh, radio and TV were kind of the main ways of getting things out. People had already turned the TV off if they had been listening. So, Was it at night or during the daytime? 10, yeah, 10.35 p.m. Okay. And I know we don't want to really get too far into the whole story, but as far as 
were were the buildings that it hit was it schools or office buildings or what? Um, it was it was a small town. It yeah. had its own high school and grade school and uh, business district that had several stores and a lumberyard, post office, a rest, couple restaurants. Had its own telephone company. Had three churches. Had a big water tower, and um, all of those were destroyed. So the town, what's the name of the town, Jim Minnick? Udall, U-D-A-L-L. Okay, now what's the present state of Udall? Is it still so there? That's, that's, Did they rebuild? Yeah, yeah. And that, that's, that's the other part of the story. I really wanted to capture how it was, how it recovered. And so uh, one of the main characters in the book is the mayor uh, at the time. His name was Earl. Rao, but everybody called him by his nickname, which was Toots, and uh, he barely survived. He, he, um, he and his family uh, laid down on the floor, and the, the house fell down on top of them and, and knocked them out for a little bit, uh, but they were able to, to get out, and they, they did have a storm shelter that they crawled into to get out of the rain, but um, they, they you know just barely survived, and after he got his family saved, he went back and helped with the search and rescue. And then, like 24 hours later, the government officials finally came from um, what would, would be FEMA now. Mm-hmm. And the, the night had set in, the second night had set in, and the, so the search and rescue had stopped. And you know, Toots had been up for almost 24 hours. And he mm-hmm. knew what these two men who had traveled, I think, from Denver and D.C., what they were thinking, and they finally asked, you know, why rebuild? There's nothing here. People won't, you know, there's no people. And, and Toots was very adamant and said, you give us the money and people will return. You, you, you know, you help us rebuild the infrastructure and, and the people will return. And he was right, and he, he led that effort. And it, it's, it's a great story. So, yeah, they Yeah, they so you're, you're saying, go ahead, they rebuilt the school? They, they rebuilt the school. They rebuilt the water towers and... Some of the businesses didn't come back, but most of the businesses did. And some of the people didn't come back, but most the vast majority of people did. So today, the town, the town population's I think a little bigger. It might be closer to seven hundred than six hundred. Okay. Um, so it's roughly the same. Oh, that's population. yeah. And the title of this book again, Jim? What? Give us your titles. Without warning, With the a- tornado of Udall, Kansas. How appropriate. Do you have a bit to read for us today, or do you want to go that route? Um, if you want, I that'd can, be, sure. That'd be great. We'd love to hear about that. And and I know that we have had a tornado watch in this area around the valley here, WEHC 90.7, as recently as a, last night. And folks, as you know, a watch is not the same as a warning. And while Jim is getting ready to read, I will tell you the one that came through Raleigh or near Raleigh we were there at the uh, Raleigh Museum of Art there, and my grandson, who was five, said, Granddad, we need to get out of here. And I said, well, Cooper, it's only a watch. And he said, no, that man over there said it's a warning. And we left, and it hit not long after that, skipped over the museum, but it, uh, five people died in it. So anyway, yes, this whole idea, I commend you. This is your first uh, nonfiction book, right, Jim? 
Um, no, the, oh. the blueberry years. Oh well, yeah. That, how could yeah? yeah. Right. Yeah. It, absolutely, blueberry yeah. years would yeah. which won the Southern Book of the Year and Nancy Olson, you know, Quail Ridge and Nancy's passed on, and I remember sharing that with her. And then at first, I think you know it became more and more popular, and Nancy, who's just great, she got more and more interested in it. Okay, go ahead and read a little bit now, if you will. So um, this is a brief excerpt from um, a section about Bobby Atkinson. Bobby was 15 years old. He was the oldest of three boys and lived in town with his parents. His parents had a little grocery store a couple blocks away. And this is the storm hit, and uh, he was in bed, but he was awake. And uh, he felt the house shift with the, the great wind, and he opened the window, uh, the screen window, and dived out in time to duck down beside the house foundation. To Bobby Atkinson, it felt like two tornadoes. The first one, probably the front wall of the tornado, blew over him with a great force, wind strong enough to rip off its clothes, but there was little debris with it, and he wasn't badly injured. And then the wind stopped. There was noise, but not on top of him. He got on his knees to look around. The house was gone, just simply gone. Lightning illuminated the empty foundation, the splintered and leafless trees. Where were his parents, his brothers? He didn't hear their voices. He didn't hear any voices. After a few moments, the eye of the tornado moved to the northeast, and the rear wall of the funnel slammed into him. To Bobby, it felt like somebody shooting a shotgun at close range right at him over and over, well, someone else kept hitting him with a baseball bat. Something pummeled his head, then both arms. Thought that something else stabbed his back and stayed there. Then a rock or brick, some hurled object, hit him on the head, back of the head. Then only darkness. My goodness, yes. Jim Minnick, reading from his latest book. And this is certainly educational for us. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So what, what is your advice based on your research and uh, this is a little aside, but what, what what should you do in a tornado, Jim? Well, no, that's not as I mean that's important for people to know. Um, and and that what what you just mentioned earlier, it was a tornado warning here yesterday for where I live, which is just mm. uh, 50 miles up from you. So it, they spotted some rotation, and they uh, the weather people were very quick to send out a warning. So. So what you should do is, uh, if at all possible, get in a basement or a room without any windows and, you know, get all your pets as well as, you know, everybody that's living with you and uh, try to get in a, um, like, the the most safest spot in your house. And if if you don't have a basement uh, and in a room that doesn't have uh, windows, and if you don't have that, uh, the bath, bathtub, I've known of several people who survived by climbing into the bathtub and putting a mattress on top of them. So oh, oh. Mm-hmm. Those, those, are, those are some recommendations. Okay, here's one uh, recommendation or what I've read about is, uh, you know, and I've thought this for some time, are many of them head injuries that people die from, Jim? Right. And mm-hmm. so wear a, wear, if you have them, wear a helmet, mm-hmm. right? Yes, yeah. I, I had thought about that, you know, back in the day, and several people laughed that off. And I noticed, and I may be wrong, but in what I call the tornado belt out that way, that 
I think that they do have helmets for kids in the schools sometimes, and I've read about that. Isn't that true? I I don't know if they have them for kids in schools, but I know that it's strongly recommended. Yeah. I mean, you know, like bicycle or motorcycle mm-hmm. helmets, any, anything like that. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, and get to the lowest area if possible. How about getting in your car? Uh, that's not recommended because mm-hmm. um, the tornadoes can just pick up car. I mean, one of the most iconic photographs from the, the Utah storm, uh, this the tornado picked up this pickup off the whole body of the truck and hung the frame of it in a tree, um, just the frame mm-hmm. and the tires. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're talking with Jim Minnick about his latest book, and uh, Udall, Kansas, and it hit uh, Oklahoma before that, and we're talking about what happened to the people in 1955. They have rebuilt, but we're also getting some good information about that. Well, Jim, as we move along here today, I know I want to shift briefly. Are you doing any poetry now? I am. I have a book of poems coming out next year, so I'm, I'm thrilled about that. I haven't haven't uh, had a book of poetry come out for, well, this would be, I don't know, 16 years. I don't know. It's a long time. <laughs> well, give us a little preview. Yeah. What what are you, you've got them coming out. So you're writing some poetry. What, what do you, give us a little hint about what you're writing about these days. You're back at the farm. Right. So the, the book of poetry is called The Intimacy of Spoons. And, Hold it. Um, the Intimacy of Spoons. Right. Oh, that's an interesting title. Go. Yeah. Go ahead. It's a collection, so it's it's wide-ranging, but there's uh, a lot of poems that deal with love in its many forms, as well as uh, birds, and and um, as well as living living here on the earth. What all does that mean? Well, you. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. Can I read one for you? Please go for it. Read us a couple. Okay. Uh, I'll just read one. This is the the title poem, The Intimacy of Spoons. Knives with their serrated edges, their solid singularity and sureness of purpose. Forks, too, with fang teeth and slots of air, their habit of piercing. Neither will ever know the intimacy of spoons. How they hold each other, knees cupped, thighs touching, the long curve of spine, soft against belly and chest, the nuzzled narrow neck, this ladle of bodies. Slowly, your breathing softens, falls into that space of sleep where you twitch in dreams, and I hold on. Oh, spooning. How beautiful, Jim Minnick. Jim, I want to thank you for being on the show today. It's wonderful to talk to you again after all these years, and so we're excited to continue to hear from you. And so you're up on the farm now, and you're doing farming every day. Is that right, or every day you, that you have time? Yeah, every day I have time yeah. doing and, something outside, yeah. Is it still you and your family doing it, or are you doing it by yourself? Uh, mainly by myself, yeah. My wife yeah. and I live here, and it's yeah. mainly just us, but yeah. Well, she's been with you. She's. Uh, I remember we will tell her we all said hello, and gosh, I remember blueberry years and how you came up with the idea, and I admire you greatly, and so we look forward to your new book coming out of poetry, and thank you so much for being on today. Any closing comments? Uh, I just appreciate all your work, Henry, and and thanks for having me and all the other writers that that you've had on over the years. Um, It's an impressive feat to 
have your program going so long. So um, thanks to you and the Emory and Henry folks, and and uh, it's a great school, and and I'm glad glad to be on your show today. Okay, thank you, Jim Minnick, and this is Henry McCarthy saying, "Do not wait up for me. Do not be afraid to stay or steal away." I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Thanks so much for listening. This old guitar taught me to sing a love song Showed me how to laugh how to cry It introduced me to some friends of mine and brightened up some days It helped me make it through some lonely nights Oh, what a friend to have on a cold and lonely night This old guitar gave me my lovely lady It opened up her eyes and ears to me It brought us close together And I guess it broke her heart It opened up the space for us to be What a lovely place lovely space to be This old guitar gave me my life, my living All the things you know I love to do The serenade, the stars that shine from a sunny mountainside most of all to sing my songs for you I love to sing my songs for you Yes I do, you know I love to sing my songs for you